Christmas last year. They were wrong. McLean, is this what you were expecting? Nah, this is just the beginning. Bruce Willis, Die Hard 2. Die Harder. Welcome to 30 Years Later, the podcast where me, Ricky Camilleri, and Chris Chafin talk about a movie that came out 30 years ago this week. Why? Because one of us had the idea to do it, and we've decided to do it. Uh, this week is the first week of July, both in 2020 and in uh, uh, 1990, which oh my means... God. You, uh, did you have that much problem just coming up with the year 1990? <laughs> is that what was going on? And uh, this week in 1990... The year that every single movie we're going to do <laughs> is from. Uh, and on July 4th, 1990... Uh, Die Hard 2 was released. The sequel to the incredibly successful Die Hard, which made Bruce Willis a household name. Uh, Die Hard 2 continued to make him a household name as it was more successful at the box office than than, than Die Hard 1 was and uh, prompted many more sequels over the <laughs> years. Um Chris, uh, I did not like this movie. Yeah, it was a really hard experience to watch this movie, to like really have to commit to actually watching it from beginning to end. Uh, I fell asleep in the movie, full disclosure, like pretty hard. And I went back the next night because I'm a fucking saint to finish the movie. And I was like, oh, I probably just have like 20 minutes or so left. And uh, I realized I had fallen asleep like less than an hour through the movie. <laughs> so, I will say, over, yeah, it's over two hours, just barely. So I had a lot of movie to watch. Uh, I did not fall asleep, but the phone was out for a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so this is 1990. It's July 4th, right? It's like as big a summer blockbuster kind of thing as you can get, right? This is this is a, supposed to be a huge summer blockbuster. Like, I didn't go back and watch the trailer, but you you can just imagine there's so many giant explosions and clean one-liners. It's just like the whole movie exists to be a good TV commercial on, like, ABC, you know? And, I mean, in, in that sense, it's successful, right? Like, all sorts of things explode. There's all kinds of gunfights and, like, cool uh, ski-mobile jumping, like... You know that's great, I guess, but it's but I just, think, but yeah. but but I think one of the one of the big issues with it is that, which seems like a cool idea right off the bat, which is that it just sort of jumps right into it without any real character introductions because it doesn't feel like it has to, and so therefore he is just unluckily in a completely similar situation as the first movie without any reason for that having happened outside of coincidence. Uh, and that just kind of doesn't work. If you skip ahead to Die Hard 3, the reason that he is in that situation is because of who he is. And the villain wants to antagonize Bruce Willis because of what he did in the first movie. In this one, he just happens to be at an airport Christmas Eve 
when terrorists take over planes <laughs> and take over the command center. It's completely out of nowhere. Like, you know, that kind of, you know, those kind of things that happen where uh, you're at an airport just to meet your wife, you understand? You're not even getting a plane. You're just there literally to pick someone up at the airport. And um, terrorists have murdered an old priest and taken over a dilapidated church right on the edge of the airport's property and set up a double command center and hacked into the airport's computers to... uh, you know, question mark. Oh my God. Actually, so to talk about the plot of this movie a little bit, it is, it is a kind of a totally insane plot. You would only see in a movie in this time period, the, the MacGuffin of the movie, the setup of it is that the terrorists are mercenaries who have been hired by question mark. I don't think this question is ever answered. Who's hired them, but to, um, there's an evil South American general who, you know, if you were watching the news at the time, you would have known, like, right, oh, that's, like, a person that does murder and stuff. But, like, the U.S. kind of supports them, but also they're bad murderers. Um, and drug they traffickers. Want to... He's a drug tra- He's a, He's being flown to the USA to be brought up on drug trafficking charges. This is Espar- right, like Esperanza. Right. Yes, it's like exactly. Manuel Noriega or something. Also, uh, I just would like to add, sorry, I interrupted, but he is from the country of Valverde, which is not a real country, but exists in two movies, both written by Stephen E. D. Souza, that is Commando, where Dan Hedaya plays a dictator who kidnaps Arnold Schwarzenegger's daughter, played by Alyssa Milano, and he is from Valderde, Valverde, where he has a line where he says, The people of Valverde need a strong leader. <laughs> Uh, and Wait, in this, does that mean that the, that the Die Hard movies and Commando take place in a shared universe? Is there an extended Die Hard universe that we could be doing with bringing only, in Schwarzenegger from Commando? Only, only because Stephen e, Stephen E. D'Souza didn't have the imagination to come up with two fictional countries. <laughs> That's good enough for me, man. I don't know. You know, that seems fine. Um, yeah, so the mercenaries are there to rescue this general, and to rescue him, they have taken hostage all of the planes which are you know, circling over this airport waiting to land. It's dull as in D.C. And remind me, is there a reason they can't just go to a different airport and land? <laughs> that is never brought up. That is never brought up. <laughs> nor is the fact that, like, <laughs> nor is the fact that, like, with with the proximity that all of these airplanes were with each other and to the control tower, they could use their own radios and use different controls to get in touch with each other. They wouldn't be <laughs> they wouldn't be solely dependent on the hacked channels or the the channels that the mercenaries hacked. Yeah, so the one time they're able to crash a plane, I mean, not I don't want to jump around too much. But yeah, they've just hacked into, they, they only have extremely limited control over these systems that you would think, like, how much can they possibly be relying on these systems? Because <laughs> these are like 1990-era computers that don't seem to be doing, like, a huge amount, you know? But it's it has this kind of anxiety about computers you saw a lot in media around this time, where it's like, if you give control to the computers... You know, what if somebody else got into the computers, huh? <laughs> you know, without any real understanding of what the computers are doing or, you know, how people are using them. It's just like, yeah, I mean, I guess it would be terrifying. So the plot of the movie is that uh, Bruce Willis is waiting, is picking up his wife at Dulles Airport on Christmas Eve. She happens to also, another coincidence to bring a character back from the first movie, be on the plane with William Atherton, you know, uh, God-level 80s asshole in movies. 
uh, who yeah, the evil the evil EPA agent from Ghostbusters, right? The, I mean, like the the news reporter that she punched in the face in the first movie, uh, and while he is waiting for her, terrorists take over the airport via a church somewhere not that far away in Virginia, and the whole reason for that is that they are trying to intercept this dictator from the fictional country of Valverde who they support for some reason. Um, yeah. They do make a point of describing them as mercenaries, but they also n- never say who would have hired them, <laughs> which I kept waiting for a big reveal by the, by minute, like by like hour, you know, an hour and 40 minutes, I was thinking, Oh, it's probably going to be right at the end and it'll be to set up a sequel. It'll be like, you know, we'll see the person who hired them being like the mission was a failure. Well, no, no, it just doesn't come up. It just doesn't come up in the movie at all. Well, I do I do think that they weren't hired. They just believed in and supported Esperanza. Like that was they were somehow ideologues of Esperanza, although of course because it's diehard too, we have no idea what that ideology what that means. really is. But also in regards to waiting for some sort of twist at the end, I was waiting for that too, the whole movie, because in Die Hard 1, the twist is that they're not actually terrorists, they're doing it for money, and they keep telling everybody that they're terrorists, and then all of a sudden at the end of the movie, or in the last act, Bruce Willis or someone is like, wait a second, they're just trying to get all the money from this area, and the same thing happens with Die Hard 3, where they think it's vengeance over Jeremy Irons is uh, committing an act of vengeance over what his the death of his brother Alan Rickman, but really they're just robbing Fort Knox. In this, you're just kind of you're waiting, you're waiting, and then you're like, oh, it is just to get Esperanza. Okay, yeah, like, like it, it legit. I mean, yeah, there's just not enough there. There's not enough turns in the movie to to sort of to keep you active, unless you just like watching 747s explode, which there are numerous. You know, I mean, if there's one thing all the best people have in common, it's loving to watch 747s explode. <laughs> um, you know, you were talking about Esperanza. Like, I just have to say, um, the introduction of Esperanza as a character, we hear about him on the news and stuff, but I think the first time we actually see Esperanza, or Esperanza he's in his house, I guess, doing naked yoga. It, like, is, isn't that how we're introduced to his character? No, that's <laughs> like not, that's, that's not Esperanza. That's Colonel, oh, that, yeah. that's Colonel Stewart. Colonel, Colonel yeah, so, Stewart is watching footage, is doing naked Tai Chi right. in his home, watching footage of Esperanza. Is it Esperanza so is or Esperanza? Uh, it must be Esperanza. Cause Esperanza is, I was going to say a language, but that's Esperanto. So yeah, it could be the one. <laughs> yeah, no, but the, the villain that you're, he's the primary villain. It's like yeah. the rescuing the general is the, uh, that's the MacGuffin. But the actual person who's doing all the bad stuff is uh, the, say his name again, but the, the actor's name? Colonel Stewart, who's being played by William Sadler. Oh yeah, Cat, Colonel Stewart. So we're introduced to him, and and I would say in a, a gratuitously long scene of him doing naked Tai Chi, watching the news, and it's, I mean, again, like, not to be the guy that's always talking about hot naked guys, or like when we were talking about Total Recall about how erotic it is. It is like it goes on for a long time, and he's in very good shape. This great guy. shape, great shape. Yeah, it was amazing to watch. I mean, I could have watched it all day. In all honesty, it was it it had a lot of intensity, and it was compelling in a way that much of the rest of the movie is not. You know? So yeah, I mean, the movie doesn't. The movie kind of starts off interestingly, where 
it just dives right into it, which at first I was into, but then it left all of the action feeling kind of saggy and boring because there was a, there was no character to it whatsoever. I did like when Sadler, uh, as Colonel Stewart, was walking into the airport and he's recognized by a by uh, a female reporter, and she goes up to get a quote from him, and she goes, uh, "Colonel Stewart, can I get a comment?" And he and he she goes, "Colonel Stewart, do you have a word?" And he says, "I got two. Fuck and you." And then walks away. <laughs> That's pretty good, you know. Yeah, um, the press doesn't come out well out of this movie. Um, again, it's another movie where everyone in the media is scum. And one of the main subplots is explicitly like someone just reporting on a very serious situation genuinely in the public interest is treated like the worst piece of shit in the world, you know. Both of them. Yeah, both. I mean, she is treated a little better, the female journalist that you're talking about. She yeah. ends up kind of being one of the heroes of the movie, but she disappears for so much of the movie. You might forget that she was there until she comes back, like, right in the last 15 minutes. But um, the other journalist... William uh, Atherton. William Atherton, right? The, the whole subplot of the... Okay, so, right. We're saying Bruce Willis is there to pick up his wife his wife is on a plane that's supposed to land. And so the way the movie is divided at a kind of basic level is it's Bruce Willis doing adventure stuff inside the airport. Like <laughs> literally there is a gunfight on a moving sidewalk, <laughs> you know, like they're just like wringing it out of the airport as a location for action. And then there's his wife is just on a plane, you know, circling dollars and just like, when are we going to land? And for a long time, and then it's the other plot is William Atherton is there and she hates him from what happened in Die Hard, the first one. And they're just kind of like sniping at each other for a big chunk of the movie. Eventually some stuff starts happening that William Atherton is like, finds out what's actually happening. And then he goes on the news, which is what I'm talking about. And it's like, I mean, they have been keeping secret the fact that like, all of these planes are in huge danger and all of these people could be murdered. And there's like this huge terrorist operation going on. I mean, I wouldn't say it's bad to be reporting that stuff. Like they make him seem like, Oh, what a self aggrandizing piece of shit. But it's like, well, I don't know. It seems pretty newsworthy. Like if you were on one of the nine 11 planes, <laughs> like if Dan rather had been on one of the nine 11 planes and had like called into the evening news to be like, terrorists are trying to ram planes into the world trade center. I think there's some value in that, you know, like, right. Which would Dan rather expect the wife of some random cop to come up and punch him out for talking <laughs> to the news. He's like doing a broad and it's 1990. So, you know, like 30 million people are watching the network news at this point. Yeah. And she tasers him. That's right, she tasers him because randomly the woman sitting next to her has a taser in her bag, which is solely introduced in the first like 10 minutes of the movie for her, like for her to use yeah, it's Chekhov's and, taser, and it, right? If Chekhov's taser. Yeah. And like the thing about Chekhov's taser, Chekhov's gun is that like you want it to be, you want, you don't want it to be obvious. You know, when it comes back, you want to be like, Oh, that's so cool. But the taser comes out and you're like, okay, yeah. When is that going to come? That's going to come back somehow. When? Yeah. And it's like the first second that she thinks something is wrong. Like something serious is wrong. She reaches into the purse and pulls out the taser. <laughs> You're like, where's this fucking old woman? You know, like I have to say, you know, the first ten minutes of the movie, I did think that it might be pretty good, and it was because of the moment where Willis uh, or John McClane, excuse me, uh, oh my God, Richard, John, John McClane noticed the terrorists 
going into the uh, like luggage room at the airport and he went back there himself and I immediately wrote down like <laughs> shows you parts of an airport you might never see. <laughs> I was like genuinely excited oh for that. God. And then it was yeah, I never knew the luggage room had so much steam. It's yeah. very interesting. And then very quickly was like, oh yeah, there's a reason you don't see them because they're boring. <laughs> It's just so fucking dumb. And doesn't he get some... One of the terrorists is, like, murdered by the luggage carousel somehow? Like, it's like, they make it seem like the luggage carousel is one of those things, like, from a video game or a factory where there's just, like, a huge piston ramming down on a, on a, a conveyor belt. And you're like... No, there's just suitcases going through. Like they don't want to damage the suitcases, so it's very gentle. But somehow he's like his neck is broken or his he's yeah. suffocated or something. Like it, it doesn't really track, I would say. Then we have Dennis Franz, who's a cop at the airport, like the head cop at the airport, who the airport's in DC. He's from DC, Virginia, you would imagine, but he sounds like he was just transferred <laughs> from Chicago the day before. It's like Dennis Franz thick ass chicago accent <laughs> being like we're gonna get those planes down listen here mclean <laughs> you get the fuck out of my airport yeah it's really ridiculous i mean he's great he's doing like a great performance the diehard movies this one and the other one i forget if three has this too they have this very weird position on cops where it's like john mclean is a cop and he's the hero but every cop he meets is a stupid piece of shit that he hates until like the last act of the movie, you know, except, and except Reginald Vell Johnson. Right. Sure. Of course. Right. Reginald Vell Johnson is the only smart cop in the city of New York. Right. Or Chicago. Sorry. But like this movie is like it goes it, the one of the first things that happens to him is he gets a, a parking ticket at the airport and has a huge argument with the cop there. Who, who is it? Who is it that's playing that cop? Isn't uh, he's like somebody I recognize? Yeah, but, he's um, like he's like a regular character actor. I imagine, I feel like he was a cop in Ghostbusters as well. Yeah. Anyway, this cop, this cop, and then um, they have this huge argument, and John McClane is like, "Hey, how about some? Uh, you know, I'm a cop in Chicago. How about some brotherly love? You know?" And he's like, "Or he's a cop in L.A., I guess, right? Because he moved to L.A. at the end of the first movie." Oh wow! You know who plays Esperanza in it? Who? Franco Nero, who uh, was uh, Django in all of the Corbucci Spaghetti Westerns. Oh, really? Yeah. That's, that's oh, my God. He looks so different. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, and he doesn't even really read as Hispanic to me at all. Like, I was, I mean, he does speak Spanish, I think, at a certain point. But I was like, oh, this fucking white guy speaking Spanish, you know? But apparently, I was way off base. Well, yeah, he's Italian. <laughs> Or does he speak Italian? Because I thought maybe he said he was speaking Italian in the movie. I couldn't really tell. Um, anyway. Um, yeah, so the movie's like, they hate cops, but also they love cops. So yeah, Dennis Franz spends most of the movie being like a dumb piece of shit who's standing in the way of Jean McClane doing the things he wants to do. I mean, he is like the EPA in Ghostbusters. He's like a pointless bureaucrat who doesn't who wants to sit on his ass and hates anybody coming into his, his, his house and telling him how to run his house. And I mean, he even at a certain point gets called a bureaucrat by like a general in the army, who, by the way, those are also bureaucrats. But like we have a, a repeat actor from uh, last week's movie uh, appearing in this. Uh, who was who that? Uh, I'll give you I'll give you a get I'll give you a, two guesses. He was in Days of Thunder 
and he's in Die Hard 2. Oh, thanks a lot, Ricky. Fucking piece of garbage. <laughs> no, I have no idea. I have no idea. Who is it? He ran for president. Oh, Fred Dalton Thompson, of course. Yeah. Fred Dalton Thompson with a much bigger part in this movie than he had in Days of Thunder. Um, I guess, or actually, maybe it's about the same. <laughs> Whenever Fred Thompson is on the scene, it, is in a scene, it seems like he's about to become the most important character in the movie, but then he's maybe in one more scene. You know, well, like, he's got, after the first 747 blows up with all of the like innocent people in it, when um, Colonel Stewart blows up that 747 to show that he means business, show right. that he means business uh willis is like sitting on a staircase smoking a cigarette i also have to say as silly as it sounds it's still it's so much fun to watch a the hero of a movie smoke cigarettes i know it's great right you it's never so ever would see that now like and imagine the rock smoking a fucking cigarette like that's just never gonna happen i don't think he could i mean the cigarette would look so small in the rock's hands <laughs> like, <laughs> it just like really strange like Jason Statham. I mean, maybe he would smoke in a movie. Yeah, Statham smoking works. Statham yeah. is kind of like the second coming of Bruce Willis in a way, but more yeah. athletic and, uh, but the same sort of attitude and look. But anyway, Fred, Fred Thompson has his big moment after the 747 goes down and he like sort of goes and does that very macho one leg up on the staircase thing next to Bruce Willis, who's upset that like he just let a, you know hundreds of people die. And he's like, you know, like a fucking that, bitch, yeah. You know, right? Thompson has that great action movie scene, which you can tell Fred Thompson is like, "This is my moment. This is my moment." But he's like, "It's not on you, McLean. Don't worry. You did everything that you could. You just gotta keep keep moving, keep going on, keep keep keep. We gotta figure this out, McLean. <laughs> That's it. That's his big scene." yeah it's really stupid yeah i mean i just find i know that fred thompson is a republican and i know that i don't agree with him on anything in the world but something about seeing him on screen makes me feel so comfort comforted and loved you know like i just i love seeing him in a movie i love him whenever he would show up on law and order even though he was playing an asshole on law and order it's just like when he says something, I just feel like, well, okay, I mean, how could you argue with that? I mean, that makes total sense, you know? Like, it just has this way of being, like, authoritative and kind of a dick, but also, like, you gotta admit he's right, you know? Like, Isn't that, isn't that why he ran for president? <laughs> I think so, yeah. It did not, he should run again. I mean, he would do better these days. Uh, I want to talk for a minute about the director of Die Hard 2, uh, Rennie Harlan, who, mm. prior to Die Hard 2 had only made um uh he was finnish but all he had made prior all he had directed in the u.s prior to die hard 2 was uh a nightmare on elm street 4 the dream master um <laughs> a movie that people like these days but at the time was like a huge disaster i think right or was it successful um it was successful uh also i'm excuse me i'm wrong he had directed a couple movies in the states before that but because of um dream master i think he got more work because the special effects and the death scenes in dream master were uh dream dream warriors had kicked it up a notch and then dream master went even further specifically with the cockroach death scene where freddie kills the girl inside of a cockroach trap mm. um but he uh he made a name for himself that way and then he did die hard uh, two and then cliffhanger cliffhanger a far superior movie to cliffhanger die. is a great movie yeah that's a i remember that very fondly cliffhanger 
And it was so weird. It was such a weird setup for a movie. An, uh, a mountain climbing like action movie with machine guns and stuff. Like, great, John, you know. <laughs> John, Lith- John Lithgow as the villain any day of the week. Yeah, I mean, also, did he like get married to Gina Davis or something? Because I'm looking at his IMDb. Yeah, Rennie Harlan made... was married. Yeah, he was married to Gina Davis, and they made Long Kiss Goodnight together. And Cutthroat Island, Ricky. Please, please don't engage in Cutthroat Island erasure because that is not okay. Well, <laughs> like... you you know the the story of Cutthroat Island is that because of Cutthroat Island, we never got Paul Verhoeven and Arnold Schwarzenegger's Crusades movie. They had written and were ready to go into production on a movie about the Crusades, uh, starring Schwarzenegger, directed by Verhoeven. But the studio, Coralco, I believe, decided to go with Cutthroat Island instead, and the movie bankrupt the studio. Oh, my God. That is completely fucking insane. Yeah. And, and, then, and Cutthroat Island was such a flaw. I mean, that was that was a movie Siskel and Ebert also didn't like, I think. Or at least one of them maybe didn't like it. I mean, I, mean, I liked it as a child because it was, you know, I was a child and I liked pirates and shit. But, like, it's, it's just an insane piece of garbage. You know? Yeah, I don't think... I mean, any movie... No offense to Matthew Modine, but with Matthew Modine as the lead, it's kind of outside of Full Metal Jacket. I don't know. I don't really know what you're doing there. Wait, can I just get, tell you something? I mean, you have Rennie Harlan's IMDb pulled up right now, I'm assuming. Um, no, I know all of this off the top of my head. <laughs> okay. The only... He spent a full year after making Cliffhanger being the... Wait, hold on, hold on. Yes. So his only director credit between Cliffhanger and Cutthroat Island is 21 episodes of the TV series... Gladiatorit, which appears to be the Finnish version version of American Gladiators. Oh, that is incredible! <laughs> like, what the fuck? I guess he was also the producer of the show. Like, I guess maybe it was just like a big money making thing for him. But from nineteen for the entire year of nineteen ninety three and nineteen ninety four, all he did was direct twenty one episodes of Gladiatorit. <laughs> I mean, that's probably like 21 episodes was the first season. And he, if he directed all of them and created and produced it afterwards, if it became as big as a success as American gladiators did, he would be, you know, insanely wealthy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So he was the director of the entire first season. And then it says producer five seasons. Right. Yeah. Gladiatoire. <laughs> <laughs> glorious twat yeah exactly thanks ricky <laughs> gladiatoire I think, no i think in 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 the nordic languages you say it like like gladiatorite like you know i think they really say shit like that gladiatorite gladiatorite uh so three three seven forty sevens blow up in this movie is it worth talking more about the plot or should we just jump yes to yeah yeah i'm sorry i know before we started this episode i have to say ricky specifically said we should be sure to go through the plot in more chronological order in a more sensible way and i had every intention of doing that but it just has not worked out that way and i really apologize no, I you know well i also think that because the plot of this movie is so insignificant and uninteresting it's kind of hard to follow through on it it's just set piece after set piece after set piece yeah. So, I mean, we, we got through basically. So Bruce Willis shows up to the airport. The terrorists have taken over the church and they're threatening to crash all the planes if 
they can't rescue this evil South American dictator. And Bruce Willis has sniffed out that there's a terrorist plot by watching someone in the food court, I think. Yeah, is that he, it? He sees two guys go into the luggage room and he's like, uh-oh, terrorists. And he pulls out his gun and runs after them like a complete psychopath. Like, he should yeah. definitely be in jail. Like, what, you know? what, I mean, what would make him think it's terrorists? This is pre-9-11. They just look a little bit nervous, but you know, guess what? They're at the airport. And by the way, like the most crowded airport I've ever seen in my life, it's the kind of airport air airport food court where it's just like cafe tables set up like in the middle of the airport and it's just completely mobbed with people. And somehow Bruce Willis is focusing on these two guys who he sees go into the luggage room and which he assumes means they're terrorists and not like airport workers or police officers or like, you know. And he runs back there and starts questioning them, and it very quickly turns into a gunfight, right? Someone gets squished. And then it's like, right, so the terrorists show they mean business by crashing a plane. And and if I can just talk about this for one second, it was funny to me because the pilot of the plane is Cole Meany, and it's it's a British Mm -hmm. Airways flight, and they really spend some time establishing how good everyone on the plane is. There's like sweet old ladies and little kids and the stewardesses are being so nice to everyone. And even the pilot is being so cool that you know they're all immediately going to die. You know? I mean, they actually went on so long that I, even being a cynical adult, I was like, oh, well, surely they're going to make it out of this one okay. You know? No, not at all. They do not make it out of it okay in any way, shape or form. Um, and the other, but the even more upsetting than any of that to me personally was that um, the pilot is Cole Meany, you know, fantastic Irish actor from The Commitments and, you know, Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. And um, very proud Irishman. Like he's got the, one of the best Irish accents in the world. They're making him play a fucking Englishman. Disgusting. I can't believe he would debase himself in this way to do a British accent and say chip, chip, cheerio and drink cups of tea. Like, what a fucking piece of shit. And I can't believe Rennie Harlan put him in this position. I mean, why couldn't there be an Irish pilot? No, fuck off. Fuck off. Made me so mad. Can I ask, did I miss something in regards to how Esperanza hijacked his plane? They were like, Esperanza's on a plane. Uh, coming in and he's clearly like under arrest and would be handcuffed in that plane but then all of a sudden he's in the cockpit with a gun up to the pilot's heads and he flies the plane in yeah so actually this is a great sequence and i'm really glad you brought it up ricky um so he is handcuffed in the back of the plane with there is one soldier watching him and it's the basically like the teenage character from the simpsons with acne and the cracking voice but he has like a machine gun and the Esperanza is like, uh, oh, these cuffs sure are tight. You think you could loosen them? And the guy's like, okay. <laughs> and he just undoes his cuffs. That's it. I think it's like they set it up in this way where first he's like, oh, uh, could you maybe let me just uh, get up and wander around a little bit? And he's like, oh, sorry, General, no can do. And he's like, okay, okay, that, that's okay. Could you maybe just uh, undo my cuffs so I could have a cigarette? Okay, sure. <laughs> and then Esperanza brutally murders him very quickly, takes his gun, and then he basically like knocks on the door of the cabin and the pilots are like, oh, who's there? And then he shoots them both in the head. And in the process, by the way, shoots out the windshields on the uh, airplane. And they're in like a military transport plane, like a gigantic, gigantic airplane. And they, they, those kinds of planes fly extremely high in the air usually. Um, so, just so the rest of the movie, he's got the windshield shut out 
shot out, and they which they signify by just having a few snowflakes drift in every now and again. <laughs> if you were at like 40,000 feet with no windows, it would be a lot more than a gentle breeze of some snow, you know? Like, So can, did their entire plan rest on him being guarded by some random nerd that would be <laughs> sensitive enough to like, let him take his cuffs off. They were like, they're like, okay, we're going to, ha- we're going to hack the computers of this major international airport in Washington, DC. We're going to kill a priest and take over his church. We're going to down a seven forty seven to show that we mean business. Your job is to make sure that you have a nerd guarding you that will <laughs> let you, that will let you out of your cuffs. And they're like, airtight dude airtight definitely fine yeah i mean that's all the army's made up of it's gonna be great it'll be totally easy i I mean it is weird because in a certain sense it seems like obviously no that was not what the plan rested on so in a certain sense he's like endangering the whole plan by doing this like why was he even doing it i mean i guess they were they were just going to force the people to land the plane just like they forced the airport to keep secret this huge terrorist operation that was going on and not send the planes anywhere else. I think they were just relying on like, you know, terror, I guess, as a motivator, which is common with terrorists, I think. Like, <laughs> um, One thing about this movie is that, you know, the original Die Hard was based on a book that came out in 1979 by a guy named Roderick Thorpe. And for this movie, they just went ahead and bought the rights to a different book by a different author about a different character and set McLean in that, in that world. And they gave Roderick Thorpe a credit that was like, uh, based on, like based on characters originated by or something like that. But it was, it was more different than that. It was like some characters originated by, because not all the characters had been, they'd been from this book, but they misspelled his name in the, in the credits. Oh my God. God. (laughs) I do love that. The first die hard is based on a book. I actually didn't know that. Like that's so wild. Like books used to be really fucking cool, man. Can I just say (laughs) books used to just be like popular entertainment. I actually have a stack of books on my desk right now of like popular entertainment books they were fucking nuts, dude. Go buy a buy a paperback written before 1990 if you want to have like a real experience, you know? <laughs> because the literary standards were low, but the action standards were high. The, the first book on this stack of books that I have uh, is a detective novel where the main character's son is burned to death by a blowtorch in the first five pages of the book, <laughs> which he reacts to by just kind of going like, oh, man. <laughs> great great stuff great stuff um in terms of set pieces in uh die hard 2 i would say that i do actually love the moment where he ejects himself from the plane to get away from the grenades so he's in the, he's inside of a plane that's down on the on the on the ground all the terrorists throw grenades into it while he's ducked in the cockpit he sees the grenades he jumps into the pilot seat buckles in and pulls the ejector and is basically as the plane explodes, he shoots into the sky above the explosions and is, yeah. scream- and is screaming like, Oh shit. <laughs> and then parachutes down. And I think actually, I don't know if that's the moment, but that or the last plane explosion is the first time ever a live action shot was digitally composited onto a background. Oh, it must be that one. It looks very much like that. I actually thought it was the 
they had done the effect to the way that like uh, the um, North by Northwest person falling down from the uh, from the Mount Rushmore, like in that way. Or is that vertigo? Like, you, you know what I'm talking about, the Hitchcock thing where they yep. like just shoot you down in a chair. Um, but it does because it has it looks like it's not real. So I would believe that it's that. Um, yeah, that's a pretty I mean, and also that's another one of those like definitely was in the commercial kind of things. Like it's just such a unique, huge, crazy moment. Um, but it is kind of weird. Like you were saying, like, so the way this scene goes is the terrorists have shot up the cockpit of this airplane that John McClane is in. Then they throw in like 30 hand grenades. John McClane sees all the hand grenades land, goes, oh shit. Has time to decide that he should get into the pilot seat, strap himself in, and then pull the ejector seat before any of the hand grenades go off. Now, Ricky, I'm not a munitions expert, but I'm just going to put it out there that I don't really think that's the way hand grenades work. You don't have like a full minute between when it lands directly in front of you and when like it explodes because they wouldn't really work very well if that was the way that they worked. But who cares if you were writing an action movie and you came up with that set piece, you would I mean, be it's great. so stoked. I mean, it's great, right? I mean, it's great. And it looks really cool. It really does. Because he shoots out and we're seeing him shoot out like in the ejector seat. And then just this huge fireball comes up behind him. Which, like, in general, I would say this movie's model work is, like, fucking nuts. Like, every time a 747 explodes, it's the world's biggest fireball. Like, it's it's great to see. Like, the one we're talking about from the beginning where the uh, Calm Mini 747 explodes, it's like... It's like there's a fucking stick of dynamite inside a paper airplane. Like the thing just goes up and explodes. And it's in this way where it's definitely not digital. You know, you're watching a real thing blow up because it's going off in all kinds of fucking crazy ways. And uh, I mean, that was fun. That was fun to see. I, I really enjoyed that. So basically, not, not like a psychopath, but he gets uh, McLean gets to the church. Uh, and which is where all the terrorists are. Somehow he gets there. He finds out where they are and he gets there. And then he ends up uh, getting on the wing of the plane. Or is that before? Or is that before? No. So um, yeah, help me out here. I'm lost in time. Yeah. 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 You're in the woods on this plot. Which I, I, I understand because it's like, it's very complex, you know, it's very <laughs> intellectual. No, Ricky. So what happens is, he, as far as I remember, and I might be leaving out a thing or two, but I'm I'm sure I'm not. Okay, John McClane has the scene where he ejects out of the plane that's exploding. That's when Esperanza, Esperanza has landed, and the bad guys have come to rescue him, but Bruce Willis also figured out everything and is there and almost catches Esperanza, but he gets away with the bad guys, and then the plane blows up, okay? The, then the good guys come to the runway. They find Bruce Willis. You know, they're like, good job. Sorry you got away. They bring Bruce Willis back to the tower of the airport, which is like the base. And then, like, Dennis Franz screams at him, and Fred Thompson tells him he's a hero, and they just kind of leave the scene on a quip. Okay, we cut to the airplane where some action happens between his wife uh, and the people she doesn't like. 
And then we cut back and Bruce Willis is at the church. And I don't know if he ever found out that like the bad guys were staying at a church or like how to get to the church or I don't know how long it would have taken to get there. But like that was literally the next scene. Like you're seeing him covered in soot from having been almost exploded in, in an airplane. He's wearing a jacket like the way a horror movie, like the way the final girl wears a, like a fireman's jacket at the end of a horror movie where it's like it's just been put on him because he is in such a fucking state of shock after the things that he's been through that he's just wearing it over his shoulders and his arms aren't through the arms and he's kind of like weakly making some jokes and then in the next scene he murders someone by stabbing them in the eye with an icicle and you're like how far are the part of these places like how did he get there you know these are if you're if you're asking these questions you're not enjoying die hard too you know like also i will say i did not enjoy the icicle murder i thought that was absurd you can't do that I mean, and it was it was another thing that was telegraphed from like a thousand miles away because they're on this set, you know, and they're he's having a fight with somebody and he bangs them against some kind of garden shed and the whole thing almost falls over because it's like a set on a soundstage. And then they roll over and perfectly behind them are like eight immaculate looking plastic icicles hanging off of some tiny overhang like four inches off the ground. And my wife was like, Oh, is he going to kill someone with an icicle? And then, you know, it happened like 30 seconds later, you know. And he just snaps it off, stabs the guy directly into the eye, and the guy goes, oh, and is dead, you know. And the icicle just goes swiftly into the guy's eye. I'm sorry. An icicle, you would, you could hurt somebody's eye. You could poke their eye out, really, or like blind them. But it wouldn't just thinly slice directly through. (laughs) into a person's brain like it goes in his eye into his brain i just like impossible i mean it looks very much like acrylic while he's doing it you know it does not look like some ice you know it's about an inch in diameter and extremely solid looking you know and he just like right through his eye did you did you feel like the church set i mean you kind of just said it it looks like it bounces around like a sound stage i found that while everything was very competent looking and very well directed the church set to me just looked very much like a sound stage throughout the majority yeah. of the movie both outside and inside yeah the outside of it and the the in well because the outside of it just very much looks like a kind of rickety like we did the bare minimum of like making a church you know right. and it looks like like the one that like they built in the desert for november rain like you know it just is like a little <laughs> tiny like mm, it looks like a church right and you're like i guess so i mean not one i've been to but like from a kid's book or something um then the inside of it is this like voluminous like there's like huge amount of space for them to set up this like hunt for red october level like computer command center inside which by the way they must have had like several semi trucks full of computer equipment and later on we find out snowmobiles to uh, to which they drove up to this church that is directly on the edge of the airport property and like you know (laughs) nobody really noticed it was not a big deal then they they must have set it up they must have set all this up because the movie takes place in the course of like a day or less than a day. So they must have like driven it up, got it all set up like in about 30 minutes, you know, just like, also okay. you never hear it. You, you never hear it for a church that's that close to the airport. You never hear a plane go over that church. Oh, I don't even think you see any planes go over the no. church. No. Yeah. And which and is it's like, like, it's apparently right down the road. If you could, you could say be checking Twitter for 10 minutes or so while watching the movie. I don't know who would be doing that, but like, let's say for example, <laughs> you were doing that. 
And you could miss that the church is supposed to be near the airport until about, you know, the third act. Because they take over the airport right in the first, like, ten minutes of the movie. And I, I, I was like, why are they doing this? Like, what? I mean, I guess they, I mean, their base could be anywhere. Why does it have to be this old church? And like, is it just so they could, like, do reverse save the cat and murder this very nice old priest? So we all know, like, these guys are very bad. Like, is that the only reason this is the location? And I then, no, I guess... A- Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 no. I had an issue with the murder of the priest because the one-liner that the villain is given, uh, or the villain who kills the priest, just doesn't make perfect sense. Like it's almost there, but the the apparently the church is about to close, and uh, the villain says something like, "Oh, the church is closing, huh?" And the priest says, "Yeah, it's like a little piece of me is dead, like or a little piece of me is dying, something like that." And the villain goes it is and then she kills him <laughs> and i was like wait no that's not he said a little piece of him is dying he didn't say he was dying he's dead he said a little piece of like you'd have to add to it you'd have you can't just say it is you'd have to say all of it's not like just a all little of piece. you is dying yeah yeah it's not just a little piece it's your whole it's whole heart whole body i don't know like it just doesn't make sense to say it is a little piece maybe the whole thing. <laughs> I think by little, you mean all. <laughs> In the little piece, we find the whole. <laughs> so we're, he's at the, there's, there's a great uh, machine gun fight at the church. And then there's a great snowmobile chase over a frozen lake. And uh, I have to say during this segment, I was thinking just of our mutual friend, Matt, who uh, has a real thing. He's a, he's a Canadian guy. He has a house on a lake. And we've been there in the winter several times. And you will see snowmobiles going across the frozen lake often. And every time our friend, who is a dad and a great guy, he'll just, he's riveted to it, looking at it. And he'll just be like, fucking guys, eh? Like, because to him, it is the most unsafe and stupid thing you can do, drive a snowmobile over a lake, because maybe the ice isn't thick enough. You know what I mean? Like, it is, because I have seen snowmobiles do this back and forth for years, and so is he, apparently. But every single time, he's like, oh, he's just gonna break, he's gonna go right through. So I kept thinking about that, especially because actually, in in the chase, in the movie, the ice does keep breaking, like, over and over again, although they don't really make a thing out of it. It's not, like, part of the peril. It just seems like it happened in real life while they were filming it, you know? <laughs> um. So then Bruce Willis saves the day. Yes, That's, yeah. He, bl- he blows up another 747 to save the day with all of the terrorists and Esperanza on it. And then after blowing it up, he lays on the ground and laughs hysterically about it, which is like the nineties were the eighties and nineties were so strange. It's like the bad, the good guy could kill thousands of people and would be like, would just celebrate and be happy at the end. There's just absolutely yeah, right. no morality <laughs> whatsoever <laughs> in these movies. No wonder why we're in the place that we're in right now. Oh my god. Well the thing is, Ricky, bad people should die. So I don't know what your problem is. Like it's good when you kill bad people and the cops get to decide who's bad. So, you know, that's the end of the story. Um and uh that's pretty much the end of the movie. He's his wife's plane lands safely. He wraps up the the two of them walk off the um walk off the runway with a blanket wrapped around them, just like in the first movie, Dennis Franz suddenly has respect for them. And that's, um, that's the end of the end of the movie. Pretty much it. Yeah, that's Do you want 
Do we want to hear what Siskel and Ebert had to say about it? Ricky, you know that I would love to hear what Siskel and Ebert had to say. I really mean that comparison with the James Bond films in terms of entertainment value. Die Hard 2 combines big-scale special effects and also quiet moments with its hero and a solid sense of humor in the style of the Bond pictures. And I agree with you that the movie, from beginning to end, for my money, is way superior to the original Die Hard, which... Oh, I like that too, uh, but this it's, is... It's, it's good, but it, it's fun, you know. This is really something special. I, yeah. I sat there aghast with pleasure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is, is that possible? No, but uh, anyway, I know what you're trying to say, yes. Yeah, I mean, I, when, I, when I saw the first shot mm -hmm. outside the control tower, and there's special effects involved there too, mm -hmm. uh, this is a terrific achievement. So obvious how much Roger Ebert just has like a kind of casual disdain for Gene Siskel's inability to articulate himself well. Like in the, <laughs> in the final moment of that where he, Siskel says, I was aghast with pleasure if that's even, if that's a possible thing to be. And no, uh, no. Ebert goes, it's not, but I understand what you're trying to say. <laughs> it is interesting to hear them talk about Die Hard 2 this way, because from the point of view of 2020, Die Hard 1 is obviously a classic. People talk about it all the time. It's it's only gained in popularity. I guess it was like maybe five years ago or something. It became this huge thing to love Die Hard so much. Um, I feel like people still reference Die Hard 3 because it has some moments that like have survived into the kind of meme consciousness. Uh, and you'll see clips from it occasionally on Twitter. This movie like has disappeared into the memory hole. Like this is down the oubliette. Nobody has talked about this movie as far as I know in many, many years. So it was, it was interesting to watch it and be like, Oh yeah, this is really weird. Like no wonder this is not something that is part of the, the conversation. It's weird to hear them say that it's a kind of bond movie because one of my biggest problems with the movie is that I don't know why Bruce Willis is in charge of it this time. Like, why is Bruce yeah. Willis the one leading the charge here? In the first movie, he's trapped. He's the only one in the building. Nobody can get in. It makes sense. In the third movie, it's all about him and the uh, the the ve vengeance against against him from Jeremy Irons' character. In this, it's like he, he would be stopped within the first 15 minutes of the movie and they would just well, pull other people in. I mean, that is why Dennis Franz, for example, keeps saying to him, like, what are you doing? Get out of here. Like, you can't be here. Stop doing this, you know? And the military guys the, are like, McLean, you did a good job. Now let us handle it. But it's like, because he's the hero of the film, like, those lines come across as like, yeah, right. You know, like... He's, he's literally an insane person in this movie. He just keeps storming into control rooms and going out on the runway. <laughs> well, you gotta stop the plane! What? Who is this? Why is this happening? Don't we have... Aren't you a police officer? What is... Stop this man from being in here. Yeah, Somebody no, but, get that man off the runway, please. <laughs> exactly. I mean, these are all very true things. I mean, I guess you have to give credit to the screenplay. Like, I mean... <laughs> It does. That is how people would react if this was if this were really happening. Like, but can then, you uh, believe how much? Can you believe how much Gene Siskel loves this movie? That's fucking crazy, dude. It's fucking crazy. I mean, I mean it, has, it just goes to show Ebert how bad movies are. I guess. <laughs> yeah, just because you just got to think, like, look, he's saying it's the best movie of the summer, and the movies that he's seen are like Dick Tracy, Total Recall, Ghost Dad. 
and uh, Days of Thunder. Like, okay, maybe. And, you know, it is interesting to mention, think of it as a Bond movie. And it, if you think of it as a Bond movie, the, the plot doesn't necessarily matter as much. It doesn't, make it, it doesn't have to make any sense because it's like we're just following the journey of this superhuman person who's out to kill all the bad guys. You know, it's a cartoon, right? But it is like you're right, saying, the- it, you can't do that because... There's no reason that he would be doing any of this stuff. Yeah. Like he's not Bond. Bond is sent there by a government agency. That's why he is there because they think yeah. that he is the only one who can do this. John McClane is just a guy. Yeah, and it's like I guess maybe he's doing it to save his wife, but he doesn't really seem to give a shit about his wife. <laughs> he seems mostly just he, to be doing it like to stick it to the bad guys because he doesn't like bad guys, you know. Like he doesn't yeah, ever he doesn't... like try to contact his wife ever, does he? During all of this, like no, not at all. Nor does he even really talk about his wife on the plane. <laughs> that is pretty fucked up. I didn't even think about that. It's like theoretically, he's being animated by the desire to save his wife that he's there to see, but in actual fact, he doesn't give a single shit about saving his wife. <laughs> yeah, he keeps kind of you know. You think he would be like, "God damn, my wife's out there." But he's really just kind of like the terrorists are doing this. This is what the terrorists are doing. They're over here. They're going to down this plane. I saw them in the luggage department compartment. You know, like it's never about his wife at all. There was a moment where he it's after one of the many gunfights or, you know, glass murders or whatever. Like Bruce Willis sees a telephone and it cuts back to him. And you're supposed to you're given to understand like, oh, he understands he has a way to communicate with someone like this is, you know, he's going to do something good. And I thought to myself, oh, he's going to call his wife and warn her or something, or like they're going to somehow he's going to get in touch with her. No, that is not what happens. That is not what happens at all. <laughs> he doesn't, he does not, he does not, he is not thinking about talking to his wife. He doesn't want to do that. Yeah. Uh, he's so having a cool time killing terrorists. Like he doesn't want to fucking call, call his wife. What is he, a fucking little bitch? He doesn't, you know, like. So uh, what's your favorite part of the movie? Mm, my favorite part of the movie um my favorite part of the movie might have been bruce willis's outfit in the very beginning of the movie uh he's wearing these kind of great 1990 things like a lot of knits like knits on knits uh he's wearing like this really great thick shawl collar sweater and this wool this extremely boxy and scratchy looking wool overcoat uh the exact kinds of things i have spent the last 20 years combing through uh secondhand stores literally all over the world looking for so i was like i was like this fucking rules like i loving loving this look loving bruce willis in this um and it did sort of bring me into this world of like just a regular guy in 1990 and i was like oh it did that's what made me hopeful was i saw this outfit and i saw him like getting a parking ticket and i was like Oh, okay. This movie actually seems very grounded, you know. And then, like, literally within five minutes, it's just insane action movie bullshit. So I was like, "Well, okay, I was wrong. I was wrong." Uh, my favorite part is that uh, John McClane smokes. I just love that John McClane smokes. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. And I and I gotta say, Bruce Willis looks really cool smoking as John McClane. He's very cool. <laughs> He's one of those people who looks like it hurts him to smoke, but he loves it, you know? So it's like, <laughs> great to see. Very cinematic. Uh, what's the uh, what's the most 90s thing about this movie? Oh, Ricky, the most 90s thing about this movie is obviously how many times they say, it's the 90s, <laughs> which they do several <laughs> times throughout the movie. Someone actually says, it's the 90s, remember? Microchips, microwaves, faxes, air phones. <laughs> 
<laughs> I was like, hell yeah, baby, it's the 90s. Get on the train, everybody. We're in the future now. Faxes, microchips, microwaves. <laughs> That's the 90s, baby. Uh, uh, what, what did you think was the most 90s part of the movie? For some reason, I'm going to go with the snowmobile fight. I feel like there were, I feel like maybe I'm just thinking of Cliffhanger, but I know that there was another movie with like, I think there was a Bond movie with like a snowmobile chase as well. I feel like there was a few snowmobile uh, chases in the, in, in the nineties. Um, it was just a cool new kind of vehicle, you know? So yes, like, exactly. Yeah. You gotta have a machine gun fight on one, you know, why not? And one does explode in the movie where we would be remiss if we did not say. What, Again, John McClane uh, is on a snowmobile that explodes in midair with him on it, but he just <laughs> drops to the ground in the snow and is like, oh man, <laughs> just like, probably you would die. Probably you would die, you know? He's like, well, that was crazy. Wow. <sighs> oh um, man. What, what is the, uh, what do you think? It's been 30 years since this movie came out. It's essentially 30 years old. What do you think this movie's grown out of? Uh, yeah, so I think that uh, the thing that's that we've grown out of since this movie came out is needing to, uh, even in this completely heightened, insane world of this movie where all sorts of crazy shit are happening all the time, the movie has kind of in the back of its mind the fact that this is a sequel to another film, and it just kind of, and, it, and it, it knows that it's kind of ridiculous that it's happening again, and it feels the need somehow to justify it, or at least to reference it in some way. Like, both Bruce Willis and his wife have scenes where they go like, why does this keep happening to me? <laughs> They're like, I can't believe I'm in another terrorist standoff at Christmas time. Wow. <laughs> like, you know, Vin Diesel is not going like, oh, I can't believe I'm still fast and furious. <laughs> like you just accept that it's a franchise and it's happening and we don't need to go there. But this movie has a little bit of that nineties integrity where it's like, Oh yeah, pretty, pretty funny, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, maybe mine is, uh, is leftover from the eighties. It's the most eight. It's actually is. It's the most eighties thing about the movie. And that's William Atherton. Um, <laughs> I would say, I would, I would honestly say the most nineties thing about the movie. And I am right about this. It's not opinion. It's objective. The most nineties <laughs> thing about the movie is Dennis Franz. Oh yeah. He's so great. He's so great in this movie. But um, he's also an nineties I- icon. Famous, famous for having his butt on network television. Like, what a legacy, you know? What a legacy. I was, I mean, obviously this movie did make me think about NYPD Blue, which was famous for having curse words and nudity. Remember when that was on network TV? Like, they really abandoned that whole idea, right? You know, like, it's weird to think that that, the 90s were more progressive than the 2020s in that one weird way. Well, more people were watching network television, right? Now the only people who watch network television are people who can't think to watch anything else. Yeah, right. So like, there's plenty of other places to see that. Like, you know, True Blood happened. Like, you don't, you you know, there's plenty of TV for you. But um, yeah, at the time, all everything had to be represented on four channels, right? Exactly. Um, so yeah. brief, brief preview for what's to come next week. It's another movie by the director of Die Hard 2. Rennie Harlan. Yeah. So Rennie Harlan returns the following week in July, 1990 with the adventures of Ford Fairlane, 
starring the one and only Dice Man. Um, final That's thoughts: right. Die Hard Two, Die Harder. Die Hard Two, Die Harder. So it's definitely of the genre of sequel that is took all the wrong lessons from the first movie, uh, where it's just like, okay, what people like is Bruce Willis kills people in weird ways. He fights terrorists and uh, he kind of has a friend who's a cop, but at first he doesn't like him. And it's just like, you know, bigger explosions, more unlikely ways to kill people, you know, more weird industrial set pieces. And I think it completely misses the point of what people actually like about Die Hard 1, which is that, like you were saying, it's it's somehow grounded in reality. And it 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 it, it, it connects an extreme unreality of the end of the movie, which is like, helicopter fights on an exploding building to the reality of just like going to the your wife's work Christmas party in a way that in the in a cinematic suspension of disbelief seemed completely realistically connected you know whereas this movie is just like a dumb action movie piece of shit with like a bunch of explosions and gunfights you know <laughs> yeah that's about right it's a dumb action movie piece of shit with a bunch of explosions <laughs> and gunfights I I have to say I think the lesson learned from a, from a movie like this for me is that if there's no motivation to those gunfights in action, uh, I'm really not that interested. They have to be extremely campy, or there has to be some sort of like emotional mo- motivation, which I found there to be none in this movie. It's just boring otherwise, right? Like you're just like you're. It's it's. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like watching a dance or something. You're just like, okay, yeah, I don't know, fine, yeah, do the thing you're gonna do. I don't know, you know. <laughs> it 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 often just and I felt this way not with Days of Thunder, but with I think another forty eight hours, where at times it just felt like loud background noise. Just like extremely loud background noise. I think I said this during another 48 hours, but it did have some of the loudest gunshots on film, I feel like. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Die hard to die uh, harder. Die harder.